Hey, you're listening to Angel Nears, the podcast for upstarts, where founders, creators, and operators share their firsthand knowledge on how to build and scale startups. I'm your host, Ole Kujikov, and our guest today is Barak Turovsky. Barak has had held many different positions over the years. Starting in the 90s, I saw you had some experience Israeli defense, which is where many technology people start that we speak to. That turned into working at IBM up until 2001. Then I'll just kind of go through a couple of these roles. Uh, you worked in product marketing at SAP from 05 to 07, head of mobile commerce at PayPal from 07 to, 0 to 2010, director of product for mobile and local ads at Microsoft. That was 10 to 11, head of product management and mobile commerce at Google from 11 to 14, then director of product for Google AI from 14 to 2022. And then you worked as the chief of product for computer vision retail AI at Trax Retail most recently. Barack, I'm excited to bring you on to talk all things generative AI. Welcome to the show. How did the intro sound? Did I miss anything important? No, that was good. That was good. Yeah. Well, yeah, obviously you have a lot of experiences. So I went through it, but you tell us about your background. How, how did you, how did you get started and, and, you know, become an expert in generative AI? Yeah. So first of all, thanks Oleg for having me here. I'm very excited to, to share kind of my background and also my experience. So yes, as you mentioned, my career started in the military, which is a bedrock of innovation for many, many successful entrepreneurs, Checkpoint, VIX.com, others. And then uh, in my home country in Israel, I mostly work on technical leadership role. My last role in Israel was the CTO of a startup in a unified communication space. Then I got more interested in product and specifically how you scale products to market. So I moved to the US to go to business school in UC Berkeley. And then I decided that if you want to learn how to scale products to market, you, you ideally go to a couple of years. If you're a startup guy, you'll go to a couple of years to a big company that prove that they can scale, successfully scale product to market. As you probably know, many startups fail. And one of the main reasons they failed because they were not able to scale products to market. And I swear to you, Oleg, I say to myself, two years, max, I will learn how to do it. I'll go back to the startup world. And then I quote unquote, got stuck in corporate. But truth to be told, I mostly worked on kind of innovative kind of zero to one products, kind of a startup within a big company with all the mm. pros and cons of that approach. So after, since I was an enterprise space before, my first role was at SAP on an enterprise side. Then I decided that I want to get more exposed to the consumer side. That's why I moved to PayPal. And speaking of kind of startup is a big company, I was a uh, First, technically second, but when mobile kind of really took off, first product lead for what's called PayPal Mobile Commerce. It was amazing two years where we grew from effectively zero in mobile payment volume to $1 billion in mobile payment volume in two years. And obviously after that product, probably on aggregate process, I don't know, several trillions of dollars in PayPal Mobile, in mobile payment volume. Then I want to learn more about mobile advertising. That's why I moved from the Bay Area to Seattle to work on mobile and local advertising in Microsoft. And the funny transition of my career, my ex-VP, my ex-boss, skip level boss at PayPal moved to Google. And one day, a year after I joined Microsoft, he called me and said, hey, I'm moving to Google. And I didn't tell you, but I told you when you were leaving to Microsoft, 
that you will be back in the Bay Area in a year. I did not tell you where you will be back, but you will be back. So that's more or less how I joined Google after a year and a half stint in Microsoft. My first role was in mobile commerce, and then last eight years was in Google AI team working mostly on what we call languages AI. I led several products like Google Translate that was actually the first product that used deep neural networks at scale. There is actually a very good article I recommend people to kind of read if they did that. It's called The Great AI Awakening from New York Times Magazine. A really good article about history of AI and a huge breakthrough that Google did in 2016 to basically prove that deep neural networks, or what we now call large language models, could be used at scale. And finally, in 2022, I moved to Trucks because I wanted to get more exposure to computer vision side, which is now, if you look at generative AI, it's basically two main things. One is languages, and the second one is perception slash images. And in many cases, they blend together in what's called multimodal. So that's, that's where my background experience on generative AI is coming from, and I'm very happy to share more. Well, yeah, you sound like the person to talk to. So uh, the story of 2022 was the emergence of AI. You know, first we had these image generation models. You just mentioned something similar that included DALI, MidJourney, and uh, open source stable diffusion. And then the real, the real big uh, impact last year, or at least it, maybe it feels this way because it's still just February, was ChatGPT, right? The first text generation model to break through in a major way that everyone was talking about. What's changed in the last six to 12 months so that generative technology is uh, all anyone can talk about right now? Yeah, I think it's a, it's a great inflection point in many cases. You know, technology could be ready, ready, almost ready, and then some, some, somebody comes and basically showing the application of this technology and, you know, to some extent, kind of an iPhone moment. So if you think about it, as I mentioned, in 2016, Google proved that through huge work on the hardware side and the software side, as mentioned in this article, The Great AI Awakening, they first of all proved that neural, large neural networks be run at huge scale on a huge corpus, that it's physically possible. It took a couple of years to start using it for different use cases, not generative AI yet. Then in 2017, Google published pretty groundbreaking research as a research called Transformer. It's an article called Attention Zone is the thing you, you need, the only thing you need, that basically started... A lot of people started thinking about those. And then there was multiple publications and open sourcing alternatives, so to speak, for generative AI models, some of them, or large language models. Google published in 2019 what's called M4. It was a multi multilingual, massive multilingual translation application, and other companies, OpenAI was formed. So basically, all those things together, combination of all those publications and also open source models created the situation that basically have a lot of companies uh, playing with it. I think what OpenAI did and deserve a lot of credit in addition to Google, who deserved a lot of credit on publishing and doing all those breakthrough research, they actually were able to create a demo that basically democratized or popularized this uh, to some extent before esoteric technology to much wider masses. It's exciting times. So help me understand what are we talking about here? Like generative tech products, what are the key characteristics of these generative tech products? Yeah, so on a high level, there are two aspects in it. The kind of the first layer is 
or two layers is AI model and also AI model is trained on large, large models. It's a kind of understatement. Those are homongous models. Some of them have like 25 billion segments trained. So on a high level, it's a basically pretty massive AI model that is also trained on pretty massive corpus. Sometimes it's trained on images. If it's large language models related to like ChatGPT, it's trained on dialogues, ChatGPT or Lambda, etc. So that's one aspect to it. And obviously there is also layer of application layer. Sometimes generic model could be sufficient enough to just use that as is an application model is just, you know, simple UI. Look at the example of to some extent of ChatGPT as an example. But in many cases, you basically have an application layer specific for a domain that sits on top of generic models that potentially could augment that model for a specific use case. So we have basically two layers. Both of them are pretty complex. And keeping it at a high level, what are generative tech companies going to do? Yeah, so if you think about, I think that's frankly a trillion dollar question. There is a lot of companies that do a lot of things. The question is that where the most of the impact and opportunity would be. And in that case, in that topic, I actually started writing, I wrote the first chapter of a series about specifically a framework, how do you evaluate generative uh, AI use cases. So people who find me on LinkedIn, Barak Tarovsky can look at this article. It's called, as I said, framework for evaluating generative uh, AI use cases. But on a high level, I believe there are the two big buckets of use cases that should be evaluated across two, maybe two and a half axes. The first axis is what I call need for fluency. And fluency is just a fancy word for how natural the output of the model should be. For example, a lot of excitement today about ChatGPT is that it's very fluid. It's very naturally sound. The second aspect, the second axis, so to speak, is the axis of accuracy. Do you need a high accuracy for the use case or low accuracy for the use case? And a lot of people today mix between accuracy and fluency. And if you use a, a human analogy or human behavior analogy, you could, to some extent, look at ChatGPT or those technologies that basically somebody, human being, who talks like an adult, extremely fluent, but has a consciousness of, let's say, seven to eight year old, meaning doesn't necessarily fully understand the difference between right or wrong, etc. Because in human behavior, it's very unusual to have a person who speaks like an adult, but behaves like a kid, right? We have some people like Down syndrome, etc., but it's not very common. We basically, in many cases, mix those together. And we think if somebody speaks very fluently, he also knows what he's talking about. If you think about even more dangerous <laughs> aspect of this technology is what I call a behavior of we all in the startup world know those type of personalities. They could be very successful entrepreneurs or very successful con artists. They have a tendency to talk about any topic in the world. And if they don't know something, they just make stuff up on the spot. As I said, there is a very dangerous output, regardless of the intent. Bad intent, it's basically, you know, con artist. Good intent, but you, it's still incorrect. It's like very successful entrepreneur who lives in their own world and believes their own crap. In both cases, if you rely on them because they're so fluent and so charismatic and so confident, you rely on their uh, answers to make important decisions, which is, you know, uh, especially true when you don't understand the space. 
we just coming off crypto that we saw a lot of boss fraud and <laughs> other other kind of uh, phenomenon like that. But back to my point, if you look at the use cases and you see on one extreme, you could have a situation of like a use case of uh, writing a poem or writing a children's book or writing a writing science fiction book. If you look at those two axes, you really need fluency. You need a good story. You really don't really care for accuracy because it's a made up, made up story anyway. If you go to the other axis and the axis of I'm asking, let's say, search engine, which, what insurance I should buy, what uh, hotel I should buy in Paris, book in Paris when I go for vacation, or what dishwasher I should buy, probably, or you ask an input for an important business decision. For example, you need stats about, you know, a lot of people ask me, what is the cost structure of ChatGPT, right? It's like a very specific answer. What you really need is accurate answer. Yes, you need the answers to have a good story. But it's much more important to have accuracy. On those two axes, it's very important to understand where things stand. And finally, the last thing that I think is very important when you evaluate applicability of the use case to current technology, especially at scale, meaning not writing one, one children's book, but writing a million of them, and not responding to one search query, but responding to a million queries, is how high stake the use case is. What it means is that what is the risk if the system will give you a wrong answer? So again, let's take an example of writing a business email. Let's say ChatGPT creates a draft of the business email. This is pretty fluent, but inaccurate. Well, if it's even reasonably high stake, meaning you're sending an email to your boss or to, you know, to investor, unless you're a complete idiot, you'll probably check uh, you know, the draft, right? And even million, million people could check those drafts and, and look at them and actually make the system better by training the system. Well, in a search use case, it's physically impossible to put a person to validate accuracy of every answer in search. That's why my assertion on the use cases is that the use cases that are focusing on what I call creator productivity, meaning writing songs, writing poems, etc., writing books or workplace productivity, writing emails, writing reviews, writing uh, documents, writing presentations are much more applicable in the short to medium term towards generative AI technology. And by the way, if you're talking about computer vision, you also include like stock images for marketing purposes, music, etc. versus use cases that I consider them information seeking or decision support use cases and searches one of them, those use cases, in my opinion, is much more complex and it will take much more time to implement. So that's kind of what you see for the for where generative AI is going to make an impact short term and long term. Yep. Yes, correct. Lower stakes, higher, higher, higher premium on on uh, fluency, because again, many people, many people are not that creative on the right but they're very good in the topics that they know well. So if they need to write an email or story or whatever, actually AI could help them a lot on that front, on fluency, and they will kind of focus more on fact-checking and adjusting as needed. What kind of economic impact do you think this will have? What will the impact look like, basically? Yeah, so look, I believe that if you look at, I mean, let's assume my theory is true, and the first, like, scalable use case will be mostly focused on creative productivity. You're talking about pretty significant impact on 
it could be 50 to 70% increase in productivity. That's huge, right? So companies, both companies, startups, like obviously companies like Microsoft or Google, or on an office space, or let's say Facebook, TikTok, and creator space, when people create stories and reels and videos and you name it, they will benefit from it. But also a lot of startups that could develop, you know, applications for different use cases, like Jasper as an example, Grammarly as an example, for marketing use cases, for other use cases. So I think that's my feeling where the initial economic impact will be very significant. You can also talk about use case like chatbots or like intelli- uh, support for customer service applications, etc. that could impact a lot of Fortune 500, 1000 companies, both startups that can serve that ecosystem and the companies themselves. So I believe there'll be a pretty profound impact both in medium, uh, uh, short to medium term. Longer term, I do think it could create a pretty significant shift in continuous behavior and search, but my feeling it will take much more time. How do you think these AI companies will end up long term? Like, are, are, are they going to be relatively like major or minor players in this economy that they're they're going to boost or prop up yes it's, it's hard to predict you know some of those the, the small startups today might become huge companies especially if they attach themselves to a big use case probably you know i don't think it'll be that different than with every disruptive technology we had disruptive technology with PCs, and we have disruptive technology with databases. We have disruptive technology with big data. What you see usually a lot of initial uh, huge proliferation of different companies, and then you have a pretty significant consolidation. One of the forces that I think, at least in the 90s and early 2000s, drove to consolidation was Microsoft, who basically, to some extent, sucked 70 to 80 percent of the profits from the software industry at that time. Most of those companies was either acquired by Microsoft or kind of went out of business. We could see some parallels here. Microsoft, again, has an interesting advantage being also a cloud provider that sit, watch, provide services to many of the startups. I mean, Microsoft, AWS, Google, and see what use case work well and then decide to enter that space. That could happen. So I would say that like, I still very exciting in the early stage to be a startup, most likely than not, like in almost every, in every disruptive technology cycle, some of those companies will become huge on their own. Some of the companies will be absorbed into, you know, bigger rivals or big companies, and some of them will not make it. I don't think it'll be that different. Okay. As AI startups often rely on publicly available models, especially today, it seems like everything we're using is open source from a tech stack perspective, but startups are relying on these publicly available models like GPT-3 or Codex. Some people question, you know, how defensible is that? Are you accruing value here? Do you think applications that leverage GPT-3 successfully will capture that value or do you think it'll accrue to the infrastructure layer? That's a very good question. So a so couple of thoughts here. I mean, there was one example that I think was the information publisher, a good piece about Jasper AI, who was using GPT-3, not 3.5, GPT-3, and build augmented layer on top of it to provide like, you know, assistive marketing application. Then GPT-3.5 came and looks like generic model was to some extent comparable or maybe in some areas better than the augmented model. So I think that will continue to happen in some areas, especially what I would call 
uh, like what you know Jan Lacun, who is a VP of uh, AI in Facebook, he calls it writing aids. I called it like you know improving creator or workplace productivity. I think that this phenomenon will continue to happen. That said, I believe there is quite a few what I call enterprise grade applications where usually the application layer is not only training data but it's also deep understanding of the end-to-end process and how those models are impacting or how they're integrated into all the process of this particular industry or this particular company, plus enterprise relationships like long-term contract, understanding of the space, etc. So I do believe that the value will still accrue. Obviously, there'll be some platform providers, mostly cloud platform providers, that will extract a lot of value. But I do believe that always, Nobody should look at generative AI in isolation. Just create a model, give it to a company, let's say Verizon, just use it. I think it's very important to understand the overall end-to-end process. How, let's say, customer service or finance professional or creative professional will use this product and basically build applications that fit very well or provide end-to-end functionality that support those processes, business processes. In B2B, SaaS, Copying and replicating products and and functionality is relatively easy. Think about how Microsoft copied Slack and built Microsoft Teams, bundling it in with Office. Is there the same kind of risk for AI startups? Yes, I believe, as I mentioned, like the moment you have powerful platforms in the 90s, it was Windows. In the 2000s, it was mobile. And in 2020s, it's cloud. This is also always a risk of somebody very powerful sitting, seeing what's working and then kind of bundling it in or, or creating an offering and bundling it together. That happened in every, in every technological disruption. I don't think that that's different. I do believe that we have significant cake to, to divide between startups. But yes, I believe, generally speaking, we'll have you know a period of excitement and hype and then we'll have period of rapid growth, and then at some point, there will be a period of consolidation. During this consolidation, you know, a lot of startups will probably be acquired for a pretty good money, right? So it's not necessarily a pessimistic view, but I don't think in AI it will be that, that different than in every technological disruption. There will probably be very few companies that will become very big independently, and everybody else either absorb or, or die. What do you think would help generative AI startups create competitive moats and maybe avoid this consolidation? Yeah, I believe that like, well, on B2C, obviously, I think uh, on the consumer side, it's like, can you scale fast, right? To be effectively become the, the big gorilla in the space. On B2B side, as what I mentioned earlier, gaining knowledge and expertise and relationship in the enterprise space, be it healthcare, be it customer support, be it fintech, you name it, the more you show your value by understanding end-to-end needs of the end-to-end user and customer uh, on the business side and taking those models, augmenting them, or just taking the models and integrating them through tools, connectors, you name it, into end-to-end business processes, that's, that's to me, the, the, you know, the, the recipe for success in every technological innovation. How different is it to operate AI from operating software? Can, can you like compare and contrast the two? Uh, well, yes, I think the biggest challenge that will, I think eventually will, you know, eventually will be resolved is that a lot of the traditional software is built, first of all, built piecemeal and also built in a way that you can kind of break it down 
different software components and understand what went wrong. To a large extent, AI models, especially Comongo's language models, it's like a black box. I always give an example, you know, I use a translation example because I ran this product. My kids right now are 11 and 9, but they were like 5 and 7 when I started working on Translate. And, you know, they're bilingual, they speak both English and Russian. And sometimes I understand when the translation is wrong, they kind of learn some kind of a, you know, wrong algorithm, so to speak. But sometimes I have no idea. It's a human brain. I don't know what caused it. And obviously there are tools to try to do it better and debug it better. But that's, in my opinion, one of the biggest challenges of, uh, of AI models, where it's a bit, you know, different. And also you need to observe and monitor those models in production, right? That's a, a big deal because, like, even if you don't need to train the model, let's say, language model for translation, you don't need the model to be fresh every day because language doesn't change that much. Unlike, let's say, search, back to my point that search is much complex use case. But in many cases, you might find, you know, very obvious, incorrect, or God forbid, offensive outputs, and you will need to kind of refresh the model, and it will not be that easy because you don't know what caused the model to do X and Y. And also, you know, if you ask JGBT the same question twice, you might get a different answer. So there's a lot of things there. So observing and monitoring models in production is very important. It will require, you know, support that is very different than a classical, you know, regular software. How expensive is it to train these large language models and, and recommendation engines? These are two of the most important workloads that, that are driving AI into the enterprise business case. Well, it's actually both. It's basically both train and also serve them both, right? It's very, very expensive. First of all, a couple of things. A, even before AI, there was a lot of talk in the industry, a hyperscale industry like search, et cetera, about the death of more slow. Meaning the more slow that we all rely on, that every, every year, you know, performance will double itself and cost will stay, probably go down. That's not true anymore, even forget about AI, meaning like there are a lot of concerns in the overall industry that the cost of compute is actually growing faster than revenue. That's one thing. Obviously, you know, uh, pandemic and supply chain issues didn't make it easier. So that's one angle. Two, to train those homongous models require a significantly more expensive compute power. Again, different companies approach it differently. Google invests up front. There is another good book. In addition to the Great AI Awakening, there is a book called Valley of Geniuses. There is a chapter about AI, and basically there they talk about that Google upfront, Google leadership, I was at the time at Google, went to the board and asked upfront investment of $130 million just to develop just to develop those TPUs, custom hardware, but other companies use GPUs. Obviously, it's very, very expensive. And usually, I mean, unless you're a company like Google or Microsoft or Facebook, you will not build your own data centers. You will use GPUs, rent GPUs, so to speak, from cloud providers, but it will come at extra cost. Cloud infrastructure is not easy. So this topic is only for, let's call it rich people. Let's put it this way. Startups will need to raise a significant amount of money just to do that. Does simulation for model training sufficiently compensate for lack of access to real data? Yeah, so actually my take on it, if you kind of step back and talk about what are the major components of doing AI or generative AI at scale, it's actually three things. And two of them, my assertion, are being commodified. So the, the three components is 
training data, ML models, and compute. We covered compute a little bit. But training, training data, I generally believe that unless it's a highly specific restrictive domain, let's say healthcare, the access to data will more or less uh, slowly will be commoditized. A great example is large language model. OpenAI publicly says that they train the model on dialogues. One of the main sources of dialogues is like Reddit data that is publicly available. It could be crawled, right? This data in many cases open source or at least what's called creative commons. A lot of other things, both in languages and on visual, are kind of uh, open source. So you can find sources of data to train in addition to using the models. Uh, so that, in my opinion, slowly will be commoditized. Training models, frankly, ML models, I mean, we talked about it. One of the reasons generative AI exploded is because training models are effectively, uh, ML models are effectively commoditized today. Google published and open source some of their stuff. Facebook did the same, OpenAI did the same, etc. So I think on those fronts, there is a commodity. I think compute is the biggest one to do it at scale. A, it's complex. Probably only big players can do their own data centers. Others will basically rent it. There are advantages to rent it, but it's but like but on the flip side, it's uh, it's uh, if you scale it to a hyperscale use case, not even search, you know, like use case like Jasper AI does, it's gonna cost you a lot of money. So I generally believe it's less of an issue of uh, lack of access to real data. Now, simulation in some places, for example, autonomous driving or other places, could be uh, could really help. Uh, but it's, I also want to warn it's more art than a science to mix, generally speaking, mixing mixing different data sources as an art and a science, even real data sources, just to give you an anecdotal example. When Google Translate was launching... Uh, uh, new languages using neural networks, some of the languages don't have a lot of training data like Indic languages. Uh, in India, you have like 20 official languages. So we decided also for other reasons like engineering simplicity, we decided to train models for multiple languages at once. And then we decided obviously uh, based on feedback from linguists to try to mix languages that are basically are similar in nature, meaning they're from the same linguistic group. So we mixed four or five languages, Indian languages are called Dravidian language group. And when we mixed them, one of the languages that we mixed in was a language called Canada, K, Canada, K-A, Canada, not Canada, Canada. It's a language in India, 80 million speakers, horrible quality before, because there was very little translation data. So we mixed it with other languages, including Hindi. And then the way Google does kind of um, evaluation, uh, of quality, we basically do first with automated checking, be like, okay, we'll run a system that will check the comp quality against some kind of golden data set. But before we launch, we actually ask humans to basically look at the previous results and new results and compare the quality. So the automatic testing showed Canada improving like crazy, like from barely usable languages, it went to like very good quality. Then when we sent it to human writers who speak Canada, they came back and said, no, something weird. It didn't improve at all. It's also very, com it's eff effectively the same. It's like identical to a previous system. Like, wait, that doesn't make any sense. We started to check and we discovered that the researcher who trained the model effectively mixed up the languages. He trained on the wrong language. I will not explain why or the reason, but instead of training on Canada, he trained Hindi and a bunch of Indian languages together with Georgian. Georgian, as you can imagine, has nothing to do with Dravidian or with Indic languages, like has no resembles, but 
quality of translation for Georgian improved so much that we actually launched it. And what we discovered is that when you randomly mix language that has a lot of training data with language that doesn't have a lot of training data, it actually improves the language that doesn't have a lot of training data it does the most. Now, the reason I'm telling that is like, A, it's completely semi-random process, and we discovered something accidentally, but in many cases, with large language models, there is no such thing as not a lot of training data, because then models will just not work. So it's much more art than a science to do it right, and if you mix to that simulated data, you can get a situation of garbage in, garbage out, too. All right, on to predictions. Is AI the new crypto? <laughs> Uh, yeah, look, I do believe that on a, over a you know, long period of time, this technology has a lot of insane amount of practical applicability. I do believe when Sundar said it's one of the most destructive technology and compared it to electricity or fire, I do believe it's absolutely true. I do believe it will absolutely change almost every aspect of our life. It also, I believe, really, really addresses the core definition of really disruptive technology where it's human and machine together. It basically makes human skills, augmenting human skills. Steve Jobs had a great example of comparing, you know, a man on a bicycle versus Condor, who is very fast, but man on a bicycle is faster than Condor or something like that. I, I do believe that unlike crypto, that you had to work really hard to find the use case where it's actually making, you know, our life better. Uh, AI will definitely help, but it will take time. To me, it's an example like e-commerce. It might take more time than people predict, and it will be depending on use case. Like with e-commerce, it started with books and then expanded to other areas. I think we'll start with something like re improving creator slash workplace productivity and start and, and, and go from there. I don't, I don't think it's a new crypto. Yes, there is a lot of hype today. Some of the use cases are less applicable than others, but I think it will have a profound impact on our society and our world in the next, I don't know, seven to 15 years. We'll see. Do you think it can maintain the faith that crypto kind of lost? Like, I guess the question here is, do you, do you think the crypto people are moving over to AI or, or is it a different set of people? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I saw memes. I saw memes about people basically declaring themselves web3 web slash crypto experts. Then they're like, uh, what should I do? I'm now an AI expert. It's back to the point, you know, that I made. Some of those people are very confident uh, people that can talk about any topic. And if they don't know something, they'll make shit up. So that's what always happen in every, you know, in every hype technology. I do believe that, like, there'll be a lot of hype, you know, as I said, in every disruptive technology, there'll be also consolidation. Some of the use cases we're talking today will take much longer. But a lot of the use cases that generative AI, is trying to address our real use case that if they're true, if technology reaches maturity and, you know, you augment the models and you find the right controls, it could really change our life for the better being improving productivity or fundamentally change the way we interact with machines. I believe interacting with machines like in search context will take much longer than people anticipate, but some other use cases are very achievable. So, yeah. So I believe it's like, my feeling is that, that it will stay, it will be much more sustainable that crypto is an example. Next question, and you kind of have to pick a side. Is Microsoft getting the deal of the century, investing $10 billion into the ownership of ChatGPT, or, or is Sam Altman unloading OpenAI at just the right time? Well, first of all, he didn't unload it. He got an investment, very big investment, 3x investment. I believe that Microsoft can really a win-win situation. 
for tourism. They they have a lot of cash, and they were behind organically on AI compared to Google or Facebook, and they now kind of catching up in a very smart move. I also believe they really literally cannot win on any of the moves that they made. All this PR ambush on Google on, oh, we'll disrupt search. I really, I, I was not Microsoft, by the way, I have a strong uh, deja vu 12 years ago when I was in Microsoft. More or less the same people, Satya and Zia Yusuf, who are now talking about OpenAI, talked about the partnership with Facebook, about, you know, social graph and how it will disrupt search. And this did not happen, but I, I actually really think, I'm not sure, Satya actually, I think, revealed his true intention. He said, give me a couple of share points of search and it will, it's, I will be happy. I don't think he believes that he will unseat Google and search, but every share in search, A, gives them, I don't know, $2 billion in, in, in revenue. Plus, remember, all this data is extremely valuable for two other amazing businesses that Microsoft has. The first one is Office. There's a complete, total, multi-decade you know, multi domination, but it's a stagnating business. Very profitable, but not growing business. They can really ju rejuvenate the profits there. They already introduced, like, you know, you take the data from, from search, how people search and what, what people consume and what answers, and you use this data to train, improve productivity use cases, like they introduced a premium version of Microsoft Teams. For 10 bucks, you get, like, the bundle multiple things, going back to bundling that I mentioned. The bundle like AI generated meeting notes and other things together, and basically will pay premiums. They could do the same for Office and 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 Word and PowerPoint and you know and you name it. That's one business that they can make much more money than in search. Uh, they can t take the same model, same data, and put it into Azure, which they are currently strong second cont contender. Looks like on track to become the first. They growing, it's a high growth margin, how high growth business for them. They can accelerate that growth and take even more share from Amazon, mostly Amazon and Google. So I believe they're in a win-win-win situation. So I believe they're getting a very good deal. I would not say that it's like, it's black or white. I don't think Sam Altman, we should worry that he's, you know, selling it for cheap. I think they're both getting a good deal. You know, everyone's worried about, AI taking their job. How do you think the development of generative AI and large language models will impact society and the job market? Yeah, that's a very fascinating question that is dear to my heart. I am Russian and Jewish. So Russia was on the storefront of all the social unrest related to you know, the industrial revolution. So it's a very important topic. I actually want to refer to a great article by Professor Scott Galloway, who writes a lot about technology. It's linked in my link, one of my LinkedIn posts. The article called Luddites. Luddites are basically people that in 18th and 19th century were breaking first industrial machine, like knitting press machines, because they were replacing human jobs. So it did not start here. So Professor Galloway talks a lot of empirical evidence that every technological innovation, including industrial revolution, dramatically increased number of jobs. Now, because new jobs that we cannot predict today, you know, cars replace cars and machines replace a lot of jobs, like you know, carriers, drivers, and you know, refrigerators replace ice, ice distributor jobs, etc. But that created pretty significant other jobs like that we did not think about, you know, financial sector and you name it. So it has a lot of stats. So I do believe that in long term, every technological disruption creates more increases both employment and wealth creation as a whole. That said, 
there will be people that will be left behind that will need to transition to new skills, new jobs, or maybe their kids would need to transition to new jobs. So it's important to understand there is not only a long term, there is a short term that requires investment as a society. Maybe the investment is probably both. It could be investment in skills, transition to skills that are more applicable. It could be investment in universal basic income, you name it. If you don't do that, what we end up is like, back to my example, Russian example, you end up with revolutions and couple of world wars and ton of unrest. So it's important to understand the transition is painful for many people, even if the end result is very good, and it's important to support them along the way. Oh, man. Well, I hope people are thinking like you. All right, Barack, last question here. You have uh, like a wealth of experience. You've uh, been working in tech for a very long time and clearly, you know, you're successful at doing it. What advice would you have for, say, your 25-year-old self if you could kind of give advice uh, that far back? Yeah, so I think it's, you know, uh, I think it eventually maybe, you know, maybe I will use example what I'm trying to to my kids. Uh, the different types of skills are needed because uh, the pace of technological innovation is accelerating and the previous educational model that was very structured, again, I'm coming from Russia, it was very structured. Uh, other comp uh, countries like India probably have very comparable education. I believe that this, it's uh, important to understand that some of the ability to adaptability, adaptability to new skills and to new realities is important and also the soft skills like communication and creativity. I would say that that's to me the most important skills that I would like to teach my kids. And then it means just embrace the change and be ready to change, you know, to adapt, to learn new skills, because that could, I mean, we will probably be in a, or our kids, so to speak, will be in the era of pretty significant technological disruption, and a lot of new jobs will become, a lot of jobs might become, or skills become more obsolete, but on the flip side, a lot of new, interesting, and exciting new jobs and skills, uh, uh, new jobs will be created and require different set of skills. So being adaptable to those and being able to be creative and, and also you know, communicate effectively would be very critical. Yeah. I'm always amazed at how many technologists, like career technologists, come on here and say, you need soft skills. <laughs> and you need to think about philosophy and uh, other things like that and not not the zeros and ones. But thank you. I, I would agree. And, and it's well said. So um, before we get out of here, what's the best way for our listeners to reach you, Barack? Probably find me on LinkedIn. Feel free to to read and share some of my frameworks and my posts if you like them and also feel free to ping me on LinkedIn. Awesome. We'll end the show there. If you liked our show, please subscribe wherever you do listen to podcasts and leave us a rating, uh, especially if it's five stars. Thanks, Barack, for joining the show today. I appreciate all the little homework that I've been given, uh, little articles to read, and uh, it was a it was a really fascinating conversation. So thank you. I feel like uh, I'm, I've, I've learned something and I still have more to go. Perfect. It was uh, it was uh, it was a pleasure to be here.